I have one of my wide guys here. He's getting ready for the baseball draft. He's a, he's a wide shortstop. The other day we were hooking up two 1080s where we could go like 18 kilos on each. And we were doing some, <laughs> some marching and abounding. And it was great for him. Just the shapes he was creating, potentiating from that was outstanding. But I was just experimenting. I was doing the same thing with a super narrow pitcher. And holy hell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was Rick Franzblau. And you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well-being and athletic performance by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast, starting with the Phoenix formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way, like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout, and I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature in our connection to it, and to bring the power of herbs to the general public. Again, if you want to see my favorite herbs, such as Shilijit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show, Phoenix Formula, and more, as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365-day money-back guarantee, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. It's great to have you here. We have an amazing show lined up for you. In the world of athletic performance training, individual differences or structural differences from athlete to athlete play a significant role in choosing the best exercise for that individual, understanding why that athlete is using the biomechanics they do in sprinting, jumping, throwing, cutting, whatever skill they're doing, as well as even uh, looking at what cues or analogies might fit best for that athlete and helping them carry out their sports skill. Understanding these different archetypes uh, on the level of structure are really important to bring our training programs to that next level. On the show today, I welcome back Coach Rick Franzblau. Rick is the assistant AD for Olympic Sports Performance at Clemson University. He previously appeared way back on episode 94, talking amongst other things about force and velocity metrics and sprinting and Olympic weightlifting. Rick has two decades of experience in athletic performance. He's worked with a wide variety of sports, and Rick has an incredible amount of knowledge in both the sports technology and data point end of the spectrum, as well as the biomechanical end. And on the show today, Rick will be going in detail on the impact of an athlete's structural type on what shows up on the force plate and what's their rate of production style. How does an athlete's structural type show up in how they choose to sprint and what parts of the sprint come naturally to that athlete? What will we use in the weight room or what are some good weight room principles and practices for different athlete archetypes? And just before we get started, that clarification, we've done other shows about this in the past, but the different athlete archetypes, we can look at the narrow infrasternal angle type, which is more of that bouncing ball, elastic and rotational type athlete. If you want to get specific, you can look at the angle of their rib cage right below the sternum and the narrow really biases towards that narrow angle. On the other end, you have the wide infrasternal angle athlete who is much more well-suited to weightlifting and heavy compression and tolerates that much better. 
and there is a spectrum of different or shades of these different types of athletes. But understand the basic buckets, we can really look at how these athletes are producing and managing force and understanding why they're doing that and understanding why a specific training regime will be better suited for one athlete versus the other. This stuff is just fascinating to me. So I'm really excited to get you guys this show with all of Rick's insight on managing these structural differences and giving athletes that optimal training that helps them to shore up their weaknesses, but also preserve their superpowers as they aim to be better at their sport and become stronger and more powerful versions of themselves. That all said, let's get on to episode 315 with coach Rick Franzblau. Rick, it's great to have you back on the show, man. It's been a while. I know you've done so much since the last time we talked. So before we get really into the, uh, I guess, the deep dive or or some some more shallow dives, you know, depending on what, what part of it it is with the infrastructural angle and athlete structure, I'd like to hear your perspective on how your, like your KPIs, your data, your testing emphasis, has the direction of that changed at all in the last three years or the emphasis, I should say? In the last three years since we last recorded and sat down, and uh, what have you been finding valuable in athlete testing recently? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I think for us, one of the important heuristics in our, in our assessment was to paint as clear a picture as possible of the athlete, who they are, how they move, how they produce force, how they dampen force, those types of things. I think the issue was we had to streamline it more so we could make this process more repeatable throughout the course of their career. And then I think for the last couple of years, really understanding how important structure and configuration are to answering a lot of these questions. So for us, looking at structure being a wide or narrow infrasternal angle, I think one of the most important things to understand with that is it's not two like clean buckets that people fill into. It's a spectrum, right? Okay, so I can have somebody that's wide as hell like a power lifter, an offensive lineman, a sumo wrestler. <laughs> I could have somebody that's wide-ish, say like uh, Sue, like Randy mm-hmm. Sprinter, the Chinese Sprinter. You may see this one like a lot of your linebackers in uh, American football. Uh, some of our position players in baseball, we'll see some wides. I could have narrow-ish, which may be you know, like a six-foot-two uh, pitcher in baseball, some golfers, and I can have those that are narrow as hell. Like a high jumper, which is probably probably you, Joel. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, any, been mentioned on this podcast. <laughs> any high yes. jumper is going to be like the quintessential, like super narrow, uh, really tall pitchers that can rotate like crazy. So, understanding that this is across the spectrum and where do they fall, and then also looking at configuration too. So, the other important piece, and this is something we've we've learned from Bill Hartman, who's been a just massive influence in, in myself and our program. The configuration, so the relationship between the thorax and the pelvis. So, you know, if I have a narrow thorax and a wider pelvis, that's going to that's gonna cause different force production, dampening of force and movement than if I have a wide thorax and a narrow pelvis. And that'll lend itself to, to different sports and different positions and those types of things. So I think it was understanding structure in those two lenses. And then from there, understanding where is each athlete's center of gravity? Okay, so forward, back, left, right. Mm. And that's affected how they get there is affected by their infrasternal angle. So their structure. And then from there, okay, what shapes can they and can't they produce? Okay, so through their foot, through their pelvis, through their thorax. And ultimately, all these things will influence 
how they produce force and how they dampen force and ultimately their idiosyncratic movement in sports. So that's, that's where we've done a, a massive shift. And, you know, we were influenced by PRI and some FRC and things before, but really didn't give us like that, that sniper vision in terms of looking at somebody's structure and what they should and shouldn't be able to do and how training or their sport has kind of created shape change and altered some of those things. Yeah. It's interesting to think about, well, where do I, what's the next or appropriate follow-up question? I guess maybe as it pertains to force plates and data is being able to understand how an athlete's structure and shape, you know, their rib cage or their shoulder width in relation to their hip width and things like that and how it impacts what you're seeing in the data. If you didn't have any insight into structure, I'm just curious, like how effective you really think you think force plates can be in the sense of not understanding that athletes are different. Like, yeah, I guess that we probably did in the past, like we just say, all right, well, here's all the pitchers. They're probably mostly narrow, some wides, right? Or here's all the, this type of group. And maybe we fit it to a group or high jumpers, obviously. <laughs> How many wides are going to be high jumpers, right? Maybe a few, but not many. So maybe describe a little bit on how, now that you have this extra layer of awareness on the force plate uh, or the 1080 even, how has that changed your process? So going in and, and like their foot, we're not getting an expansion of that shape in the foot. So let's, let's get mm -hmm. more expansion there, come back and test. Like, give me a little bit of examples of how that's now changing how you're uh, looking at those metrics. Yeah. So we mentioned before, first kind of identifying the structure and the configuration. And then, then we do still have our movement-based tests. We've kind of gone back towards more like SFMA, like toe touch, global rotation, uh, the global extension. And this kind of gives us an idea of, so obviously when we lay them on the table, looking at structure, we can see them, you know, visually configuration, those types of things. Then we do some of these movements. We get a better sense of some of the shape changes that they can make. And then once we get to our performance testing is we can, we can confirm or kind of deny a lot of the things that we, we have been previously seeing. So a good example would be, say I have a, a narrow, narrow outfielder in baseball with a narrow pelvis. So he's pretty narrow, narrow guy. So for him, a narrow is going to be really good at rotation, right? Okay. So they have leverage through the external obliques, which pulls the ISA down, right? Compresses the viscera. So think it's kind of pushing the guts into the pelvic inlet, which opens up, okay, which allows them to rotate better. So I should have somebody that rotates well, has a lot of excursion. They're going to be more of a low pressure strategy as a, as a human being. But if they're an outfielder, they got to be able to run fast. They're going to hit so they have a lot of rate dependent movements in sport. Okay. So what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to find a way to compress themselves kind of anterior to posterior from the top. So think of like a tube of toothpaste. Okay. So if I take a skinny tube of toothpaste and I, and I kind of squeeze it and compress it from down up top. Okay. And I push things down to the bottom. That's kind of what they're doing with their pelvic outlet to kind of preload it. That's the only way like a narrow, narrow person will be really good at high force and short windows, okay? Mm. So generally what I'll see with that type of individual on a force plate is they'll be able to increase their braking rate of force development. They'll have, looking at the graph, they'll have real steep braking, a pretty steep braking phase, much more than you would normally expect for a narrow. So a, 
narrow, narrow, who's not compressed, we know that they have more excursion in their anterior outlet, their pelvic floor. So right? they can, like, yeah, just to stop, just to ex- explain, yep, um, yeah, because I think, you know, I've had the good fortune of being able to go through a lot of shows related to this and mentorships mm-hmm. and things. But for people yep. who may not have as much, just can you explain the, ex- the excursion and the descending yeah. there a little bit more detail just so people can yeah. picture that? Yeah, sorry heads. about that. Um, no, no, no worries. No worries. <laughs> I would do the same thing for easily. So, Okay, we can just start thinking of the sacrum and shape change of the pelvis. So if I'm a Y, okay, I'll have more of a nutated, nutated sacrum. Okay, so think about like the, the apex or bottom of the sacrum kind of lifting up. So I'll have all this space to move into posteriorly. That's why a Y is better at more hinging type movements. Generally, yeah. That, so yeah, the sacrum right. nutation is where the sacrum is like open, so things can go into yep. it basically. Yep. So yes. they can, yep. Okay. Now, if I think of a narrow, okay, they're going to be more counter-nutated sacrum, which would create more of a concentric posterior pelvic floor and more of an eccentric anterior pelvic floor. So these guys, gals, will like vertical hip displacement, okay, like a true squatty squat, okay? So if I think of a a narrow that has good relative motions, generally speaking, their counter-movement depth is going to be greater in a counter movement jump on a force plate, right? Yeah. And they may be able to create some really good jump height, but their rate dependent metrics will usually not be very good. That's where I use the example of an outfielder who's a hitter also in baseball where, you know, they got to time up a 95 mile an hour fastball. They need a lot of that compression to be able to kind of this this A to P from top to push Mm -hmm. that pelvic floor down a little bit. So now it's kind of in like a preloaded position, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Okay. So then we start to see these differences on the force plate. So if I have a, I'll give you an example. I had a six foot four pitcher last year. He got drafted at a 39 and a half inch vertical, had some pretty good relative motions. He, he could create this bigger descension of the pelvic floor. And because he was a funnel, so he had, he was a narrow thorax into a very narrow pelvis. Yeah, Dwight Howard right? Superman. Yeah, Dwight Howard Superman shape, just the, or, or inverse, tra- inverse traffic cone. Right. <laughs> So think about it like, and as I'm in a more inhaled pelvis or I'm descending down more eccentric orientation of the pelvic floor, the guts are going to move down. Okay. But if I'm moving into a smaller space, I'm going to create a huge pressure gradient, right? Which is going to actually keep the guts suspended a little bit. So if I'm a narrow with good relative motions and I can descend and expand the outlet and then catch good concentric orientation, and move up into the guts, which has been suspended, and there's this pressure gradient, is now I can literally use the outlet as like a trampoline to throw the guts up. That's what high jumpers do, mm-hmm. like, like yourself, Joel, right? Okay, so we'll see with these individuals is they'll get like a second positive double bump in their force plate graph, okay? And these are generally some of your athletes that can create really impressive jump heights, but maybe their rate-dependent metrics aren't quite as great as as like the narrow who's super compressed got it they and use more like, time like an expanded so a narrow a narrow who's and by not compressed you mean like they're not like like the athletes who i mean the the simple term without getting the weeds you could just say they have really bad posture i mean that's there's a lot to that well, but you know so like, compression is just constant orientation so if yeah, i'm, if I'm compressed forward. from the back that's going to limit my external rotations okay so i get pushed from the back and then eventually I'm falling forward to prevent myself from falling forward. I'm going to compress stuff on the front side of my body, like my pecs, my pubis. Yeah. That's how I lose my IRs. Okay. So somebody that's, that's compressed, they push from the back, push from the front. 
limited ERs, limited IRs. Right? Yeah. Because that's that's basically what you're going to see. Yeah, I, or a better word. Sorry, I'm just trying to find better words that would that mm-hmm. make this a little bit simpler, more streamlined. Because I, I know when I'm sometimes if I'm listening to this and there's a f- concepts I'm not familiar with, it's like, wait, I have yeah. to rewind it. I'm going to go look that up real quick. It's a, it may be a better term, but just a stiff, like a narrow, a stiff narrow. Yeah, that just doesn't yeah, have good yeah. range of motion. Like, be, and you'll see any any narrow who's in a high force with a rate dependent type sporting movement, they're going to be really, really compressed. Basketball yeah. players wide receivers, defensive backs, position players, and, and baseball. Yeah, if a, if a narrow is in a, a very rate-dependent type sporting movement, they're going to be highly compressed. Yeah, that, that makes, so a good example of that, I think that like stories can help paint these pictures as well as I had an athlete who, back at Cal, the swimmer, guy from Poland, like second place of the 50 free at Nationals, just super explosive. Oh. But because he was a swimmer, he had played like volleyball and stuff, but you know, mostly swimming. And he, his standing vertical, at least on just jump, which is going to give you about six more inches, but was was over forty. He's like forty-one two. You know, pretty good. Wow. Yeah, but I mean, this guy hit like almost a deep squat to get it. Like he was the proto, and he was very like mm. upright, good posture, not compressed. Mm. You know, like because I think largely because of swimming. Like if he was a basketball yeah. player, he probably wouldn't have used. But his he used a huge range of motion. Like dropped into almost a total deep squat. Yeah. Like just. Like he is the prototype, I feel like that expand, you know, uncompressed, narrow, you know, swimmer who was able to use that almost deep squat type motion to to just launch. And he had good leverage. He had you know long femurs, long feet, long toes. Like he had all the levers that made him a good jumper. But what was funny too is that that guy is we, and this will probably fit into what we're going to say later. And back to the metrics is when he would do some of the typical like regular lifting, like regular full range squats, hex deadlifts, safety bar squat. He would put weight on those and not really jump any higher where some of the other guys were and so it's all you know that i was thinking back to like rate of impulse like because when we switched him to a lot more like oscillatory squats like that's when he exploded like he really did well with that so if that was our metric you know going saying hey you're a narrow you have a lot of range to work with and then you know that so hopefully we can tie that into the conversation as well because always i think we just say oh well everyone should do oscillatory squats all the time and you know regular full range squats don't help any you know like no it's like this is an athlete with specific nuances and so this is how this fits in to help this person be better at what they do oh no doubt so i mean that's kind of what we're talking about is you could have a narrow uh with more relative motions and so basically a swimmer he was using his, his outlet and could it could really capture good concentric position there he wasn't yeah. relying on on some of the a to p compression as much and more of the rate dependence so a lot of times we'll have you know like a pitcher who who needs more relative motions a lot of times and like a, a position player and they may jump the same heights but counter movement and the rate dependent stuff like breaking rfd those types of things will be vastly different but that's where it's these things are just really helpful to help confirm a lot of things that you're seeing as you're going through your assessment and understanding what do they specifically need in sport? Because if I do have like a, you know, say it's a it's a soccer player, like a winger, a forward, okay, needs a lot of speed, narrow, you're probably not going to find these too mm-hmm. often because usually the sport itself compresses them pretty good. But if they have big jump height and they do it through a lot of relative motions is and then bigger counter movement depth is that may not necessarily play well in their sport is, is some cr- compression, A to P compression is going to yeah. be a good thing. And that's what... That's what this whole process is really about is just discerning and understanding what shape changes can they make? What do they need for their sport and for their structure individually and understanding from there kind of how you're uh, developing a plan for them. 
Yeah. And so, yeah, back to that swimmer too, because I think this, those two, the stories of those two athletes, of course, it's really clear in my head. Like, so of course I see it and understand it, right? But like that can, I think that can paint the way of, of, or at least like, this is an archetype. This is what I see. And this, that swimmer, by the way, was not that good off the run, like running jumps, like mm. really poor. Like if he got an extra two steps, he would do this weird, awkward jump stop and maybe jump like two inches higher, you know, but it was really slow and really awkward. It wouldn't work in sport. And we would play versions of basketball to warm up for the weight room sometimes in the off season. And he was not that athletic with it because he, mm. his, he just needed, we even sprinted a few times in the off season and he wasn't actually that as fast as his jump would have alluded mm-hmm. to. He was just really good at this long, slow, super snappy. And even he, um, I don't know if this would have anything to do with it too, but the pressure that he created was immense. Like you could see it in his cheeks. And I know that's a, th- a general thing anyways, but it was almost like he had even more pressure too mm-hmm. than other people. But there was another uh, swimmer who was actually, he got first place in the 50 free at national. So he was just a little bit faster. And I think his underwaters were a little tighter and this guy was compressed. I mean, this guy had been, lifting weights since he was very young he was also a narrow but he was a compressed narrow and his standing vertical wasn't as good i think it was like i don't know on the just jump of course which is you know inflated uh it was like maybe 35 maybe 36 on a good day but with with like three steps this guy was touching like 11 6 and he was like 6 2 i mean he was just he was just bouncing off the ground we, we would play basketball he could do like 360s and just like all the compressive stuff like if we were talking basketball like this guy compressed narrow was way more functional. And mm-hmm. so it was almost like the two needed different things. Like the, like if we were going to make these guys into basketball players, <laughs> the guy who was super compressed, I feel like he would just need to do more expansive stuff. Like he was already there. He was already compressed. Yeah. His reversal was insane. I mean, he had compressed himself so hard. I was trying to remember what his posture looked like, but it was almost like his, his femurs were kind of straight ahead, but then his tibias were super externally rotated to create this, like, and his calves were just massive. It was just really unique. I've, swimming actually gives you some really unique postures I don't think you get in other sports. And then, whereas the other individual, I feel like he would need to be more functional at basketball. He would just need a lot more just compressive stuff to to get him off the ground quicker and all those types of things. So, the extremes in swimming maybe extrapolated into what you might see in a Yeah, that's so you look at uh, uh, any swim meet, when you look at the starting blocks, almost every structure is going to look the same with swimmers, right? They're very compressed narrows, A to P. The A to P compression actually makes them more buoyant, right? So if you turn every swimmer sideways, you can barely see them. They almost disappear, mm-hmm. right? Because they're pushed from the back, pushed from the front so much, but that helps them with their buoyancy. So, yeah, it's been a while since I trained swimmers, but um, oftentimes they, the compression helps them, especially early on with some of the lifting types of things. And you just every once in a while have to give them, give them a little bit of their IR uh, back so that the shoulder doesn't start uh, barking at them, those types of things. But it's, it's, you see it across all sports, you know, like we mentioned the swimmers. If you go to a powerlifting meet, you're going to see very much the same structures as a high level sport. There's a, a natural evolutionary process and selection towards these certain structures and configurations. Yeah, interesting with the, the swimmers too. I mean, I guess you think about like lateral force, most sports, you get some sort of lateral force, right? And then change of direction or something like that. And swimming is definitely a sport where when you're not on the, it's not like there's like a side stroke, you know, <laughs> the, side, the side stroke, comp, you know, event to kind of give you a lateral compression of some sort. So that's an interesting take with that. I mean, I don't see as many swimmers in person these days or by a magnitude numerically, but it would be interesting to, to think about that from that perspective. Okay. So, you know, we talked about like the narrow, like the pitcher, the, the person who 
is really good at expanding down into the jump. And you see that double curve. And I also do feel like that has ramifications for even like the second pull in a clean or Olympic lifts. If your athletes are using Olympic lifts, I always feel like wides were really horrible by nature at kind of getting that second pull to hit. And I feel like yeah. there's got to be something similar there. You know, that, that double hit of the vertical, I think could correspond with what you're seeing out of the ability to kind of hit, have a quick storage and restorage maybe through expansion. But then again, in a Olympic lift, it's more posterior expansion. It's more hinge related. But I mean, I am curious what your thoughts are there. But I also want to talk about, okay, well, maybe let's slip and talk about the compressed individual. What does their vertical jump look like? And what are we looking at from, what are we trying to give them to help them out? Yeah. So in terms of like rate dependent metrics, so high breaking RFD, the kind of optimal structure for that is going to be a wider thorax into a narrow pelvis. So think of almost like Barry Sanders, right? They're going to be awesome at getting in and out of cuts, those types of things, great at breaking and then quickly overcoming. So we, they have the steepest breaking RFD that we'll see on the force plate graphs. And so this is what you'll see a lot of times in like linebackers, uh, American football. Right? Yeah, so a wide I say inverted pylon, steepest RFD. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So think of like an upside down cone, right? Yeah. If you got that and they're wide, like uh, that's LeBron James. Is yeah. is probably a little bit wider into a more narrow, and you'll see it, you'll see it in their jumping too. If they're more of a two foot jumping preference, is they'll be more wide. You think? Do you think LeBron's a wide ISA? Um, I putting you on the spot. But he's a more he's, linear player. Like he he goes he gets a step and goes linear more than like you know the the rotational like type. Yeah, type I mean he knows. he's certainly wider than like Michael Jordan, who was yeah. like a. You know, he was a, a narrow into a very, very narrow pelvis, which yeah. still create a good pressure differential. But like a lot of times, like linebackers in American football, they're super athletic. Mm-hmm. A good example would kind of be like uh, Ricky Henderson back in the day, mm-hmm. uh, the big base dealer. So like that's a great example, like looking in into in the sprinting and base dealing baseball. Ricky was kind of wider into a super so great pressure gradient. Okay, And if you see him coming out of his base dealing, is you'll see him really drive his center of gravity down, really low heel recovery, like those mm-hmm. kind of clean front side mechanics that everybody wants. And if you look at somebody that's a lot more uh, narrow, like I don't know how many baseball fans and people you got here, but like Billy Hamilton, he's super, super skinny. He's like a narrow into a narrow, into a very narrow pelvis. He likes to get up and run. So it's his kind of first movement is kind of Because think about this too. A narrow, their center of gravity is higher. Right, yeah. a wide the center of gravity is lower. So if I think about acceleration, okay, my center of gravity is right in front of F- S two in my sacrum, right. So if I think of a wide, I can nutate the sacrum and I can kind of lift that apex mm-hmm. up, have that, that room, which will point my center of gravity down. So a lot of times in acceleration, it's these wides and these wide funnels that can really drive out and get a, and get into some of these clean like front side mechanics mm-hmm. with their acceleration. It's the narrows who, because they can't mutate and drive the center of gravity down as much, they have to orient the pelvis, orientate the pelvis more down. And that's why you see sometimes more of the backside mechanics with these narrows and acceleration. And, and that's where you have to identify, is it in a safe bandwidth or not? Sure. Right? Cause a lot of like, there's so many times I've, you know, now I know this, but I didn't for so much, you know, feel sorry for my, if my athletes. <laughs> oh, that 10 years ago. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Even going back three to five years ago is 
we'd be really trying to clean it up, but it's a lot of times it's structure. You know, you think like a, a Matthew Bowling or like a, you know, I was, I was watching film on the um, NFL combine. This year was a guy, Tyquan Thornton, I think his name was. He's Baylor. He's a wide receiver. He ran like a four, three Oh, he got drafted by the Patriots, but could absolutely fly narrow as can possibly be big backside mechanics mm-hmm. in his, in his acceleration. But you know what, that's, that's what his structure is going to dictate for yeah. him to actually be able to accelerate and get forced down. He's got to, he's got to create a big orientation of the pelvis because he can't mutate as well. And he has a smaller IR space. So that's where understanding these things are, are really important in looking at both the force plate, but also, you know, looking at these acceleration patterns and, you know, when you're doing different jump drills is understanding how they're going to pressurize, what positions are going to be advantageous for a, for a wide and for an arrow. If you haven't heard of the Elastic Essentials course or seminar, I wanted to quickly fill you in on this transformative educational opportunity. This past year, I put a comprehensive course together on the evolution of my training system, and it's called Elastic Essentials. I designed this to help coaches deeply understand the principles by which human beings produce effective athletic movement. I've spent many years trying to figure out why athletes were getting stronger in the gym, but they might not have matched that strength with their explosive and dynamic abilities. And I've experienced this both as a track coach and a strength coach, and it led me on a journey to really dig in on those key elements of explosive, ballistic, and quality athletic movement in a way that really gives athletes or leads athletes to their full potential. In the Elastic Essentials course, I highlight my evolved view on plyometrics, sprinting, strength training. I go in depth on the foot and lower leg dynamics to a level far beyond anything I've put out on this podcast or social media. And I also speak on how I totally shifted my approach to maximizing key body weight elements that not only helps athletes move better, but also helps them to reach their athletic strength potential. The course is tied together in a detailed programming module, and it also offers five awesome bonus interviews on top of the main curriculum. Not only will this course accelerate your evolution as a coach, but it's also worth certified CEUs for organizations such as the NSCA and NASM. Coaches who have taken this course have said it's the best con ed money they've ever spent. They've said they would pay multiples of the listed price, such as saying they would pay $1,000 for this course. But you can get this course right now for a fraction of that. And you can head to justflysports.com to check it out and sign up today. Also, in addition to the online course, I'm hosting an in-person live seminar July 22nd and 23rd in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can check that out as well on justflysports.com. Okay, let's get back to the show. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. I That's definitely where I've, the further I've gone with these biomechanical links. I mean, my even looking at what, well, what's your philosophy? Like in my first priority is the brain is so intelligent. It's not making, I mean, sometimes it's doing things that probably aren't, are, not, are definitely not optimal for the athlete. But in the majority of cases, it's taking what the structure of the body has and it's doing the best it can given its experience. You know, and it's like, yeah, these athletes who are doing some of these outside the, you know, I don't know, whatever the air quotes, technical model, right? Like, they're doing it for a reason. I mean, yes, sometimes yeah. athletes are doing, yeah, especially when that push bandwidth does become unhealthy and the posture just gets, and, but mm-hmm. I, I do feel like too, I'd be curious your thoughts on this. Sometimes athletes do that in a 40 situation, but then when it's a game in a game, like they're okay. Like it's like some people just, I feel like don't know how to run when there's nothing going on. It's like, Oh, <laughs> just run in a straight line. Like, and they never did track. Like, you know, they just, some, then it's like a, it's an environmental right. issue, you know, but if, if they're not going to run like that in the game, like you see those examples of these insane push runs, it's like, 
Are you really running like that in the game? <laughs> I don't know. I just like I, I just feel like the brain's really smart. I know the brain is so intelligent, and it's going to take all these nuances of your structure, and it's going to do pretty much the best it can with the context, at least to what it knows, until you give it something else. Yeah, certainly. It just kind of goes back to initial assessment: is understand the shape changes they can and can't make, and for them, a lot of times these positions they get into is their superpower, but too much of it kind of leads them into an unsafe bandwidth. And that's where, yeah. you know, just really understanding the details of their, their structures, configurations, the shape changes they can make when they're successful. So that's where like for KPIs for me a lot, you know, I, I work more with baseball now. A lot of it's not KPIs, it's KMIs, key movement indicators, positions that I want to see these guys be able to get into. And they're kind of idiosyncratic for each guy and their, their structure and configuration. But ultimately that's going to dictate them having success, not a, a jump test, a lift or something like that. And part, part of that too is also the structure, you know, like a, a narrow, uh, you know, in baseball, like rotations be really important. That's their superpower. I got to mm-hmm. make sure they yeah. keep their superpower, right? If they get too compressed, particularly as a pitcher, okay, they're going to lose some rotation capabilities and their ability to use their ER expansiveness to drive velocity, right? Like on a wide, it may actually be something that's more force related. It may actually be a counter movement jump or a power power output in the weight room or those types of things. But that's where this all, it's just become so nuanced for me. Uh, and the reason I think I love, so this is the first year I've, I've just been working with baseball. I still oversee our strength department and our sports science department. But the reason I love it so much is it's, it's less of an open, chaotic, reactive environment. So we can make these changes. And the, the idiosyncratic nature of the movements, we can change. If I create a shape change, we can change their setup and those types of things. So that's, that's what's made kind of me as a practitioner and kind of just working with baseball as my own team now has made it, has made it exciting because you can control these factors more and understanding their structure configuration can make probably a bigger difference in that sport and maybe golf than any other. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's yeah. Once you understand the structure and what people are missing like and and really being able to tune into that rather than i mean (laughs) it's great to squat you know but it's like it's even cooler to know exactly what a person's missing and tailor the squat to them you know or whatever you're doing over time let's dig in just a little bit of the acceleration piece just a little bit more because i think Mm -hmm. it is interesting and obviously it is a data point your acceleration time and and all these things so with the with the narrow versus the wide you mentioned the wide has an easier time gaining front side mechanics in that acceleration Mm -hmm. and the the narrow has a hard time like staying down. It doesn't want to stay down. It wants to like yeah. get up and, and, and so I, for me personally, like I'm, I am so the prototypical narrow. Uh, and, and even so I was a, my second best event. So high jump was my main and then probably oh. triple jump. But then the, the more speed that was required, the worse I actually got. Cause I think I had a hard time with Ooh. compression and like IRing the pelvis and IRing the shoulders to get, take everything forward. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex Zephyr's podcast will come out highlighting that like before this one. But I was also really good at javelin, which is rotation and like just whip, yeah. like just pure yeah. whip. Like that was my jam. Like that was like came so easily to me. But I felt that the times in my life where I was always frustrated with my acceleration in college, I remember some middle distance runner beat me at the 30. And this is the year I'm high jumping like seven feet. Like, and I was like, oh, like I was just so ticked off. I did run a little faster the next year, <laughs> but still, it was still just a sore spot. And the things, though, that I feel like have always been really helpful 
have been for me and this is maybe gets into a okay well if you have a nero who comes up really fast and i think even like flojo like florence griffith joiner mm-hmm. florence griffith joiner back in the day she's upright by like 15 20 meters you know yeah, like and yeah. probably a nero like she's just leveraging what she has mm-hmm. rather than the technical model of everyone do the same thing but anyways, I always felt like it was really valuable for me, um, like I'll list some of the things, was like doing a lot of starting drills where I'm in a squat, like a lying down position, belly starts, you know, um, mountain climber starts, rollover starts, stuff where I have to get up from a low position and figure mm-hmm. out that problem. Squatted yeah. running, sleds, hills, like I, that stuff was all really helpful for me. And so, I mean, obviously you, you can't make a narrow get down there, but you can expose them to things where they're lower and their body has to, I mean, what is your take on that? Like, let's say you have a narrow who is like maybe outside the bath. They come up right away. They're kicking back right away. It's probably a point that's either A, unhealthy or B, they're going to not be as fast as they could. For that group, what is mm-hmm. your, what are you doing? Like, what are some intervention points? So like 1080 sprint stuff or anything you're looking at there? Yeah, I think, I think we're, uh, I'd be lying if we said we had this this process down to an yeah. absolute T. You know, it's kind of the, the age old question. That, you know, what's the the time and the right point in time for the intervention? But I think for somebody like that, it's can you give them access to some to some IR positions, mm-hmm. right? Which will help them compress a little bit better and get into positions. I think the one thing I've I've stayed away from a little bit is the super heavy big velocity decrement stuff with the narrows. Oh, got it. Um, I think one of the reasons, so the thing we have to look at, the more narrow I am. So super heavy sleds, by the way, just to, sorry, just for people who aren't, velocity decrement, very heavy sleds. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Slow you down a lot, like 50%. For us, we'll use it on the uh, the 1080. Yeah. And we we still will use resistance stuff with the narrows. Mm -hmm. And this is something I'm just, I'm just kind of testing out. But if I think the more narrow I am, okay, the more kind of early stance ER I'm going to have, I'm going to have a really small window of middle IR, and then I'll kind of have a big ER space for late, right? If I just have this tiny little space to create IR, think IR just forced down in the ground, ER expansion up, right? And I'm doing these long ground contacts, super, super heavy, okay, is I don't really have a much of a middle space, so I'm just going to create this crazy orientation right and drive more into like a late propulsive state to get describe it describe orientation quickly too so i'm a narrow i have a really heavy load it's putting me down into the ground for a long time is that Mm -hmm. like an anterior tilt bilateral pelvic anterior pelvic okay yep think left right the nominate and also the sacrum okay Okay. everything's everything's dumping forward as one giant unit to to put and the reason somebody would create an orient an anterior orientation of the pelvis is to get forced down into the ground okay which is advantageous in sports that's why our track athletes our fast explosive athletes they have orientation because it gets them down into the ground moves their center of gravity forwards they get closer to the max propulsion quicker right but if I'm super narrow and I just have this really small space, now I'm going to get to the point where maybe I'm creating way too much orientation with these long, slow impulses because I don't really have much of a window to push down. Now, if I'm a wide and my game is getting into some really good positions in that early acceleration with those longer ground contacts, and I have a bigger kind of middle IR space, okay? I have less of that early stance ER and less of that late stance ER. Okay. That's like the, that's the perfect structure to be able to get into those positions and take advantage of it. Uh, and it's right in their wheelhouse. So 
with a lot of our narrows, we've been doing doing some lighter resistant stuff where they can they mm-hmm. can feel a little bit, but it's still kind of not super long ground context. Like we'll get, I mean, I have one of my wide guys here. He's getting ready for the baseball draft. He's a he's a wide shortstop. The other day we were hooking up two 1080s where we could go like 18 kilos on each, and we were doing some <laughs> some marching and bounding, and it was great for him. Just the shapes he was creating, potentiating from that was outstanding, but. I was just experimenting doing the same thing with a super narrow pitcher and holy hell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that went to help. That's, that's one thing I think we have <laughs> to funny. look at with some of these resistance protocols is, is understanding their structure. And when we do these force velocity profiles and we're looking at their, the ratio of force. So the horizontal, the vertical force vectors and the, the ratio there and like the DRF. So the percentage that they're losing the horizontal, those types of things is, we have to really look at that because uh, sometimes the the adaptation to that for like a narrow may not be advantageous for anything but them running squatted a 20, or yeah 30, running or, or running super resisted dash, right? yeah low and squatted like you yeah. might you might actually be putting them in in some positions that could that could put them at risk in their actual sport you know so these are kind of early observations with that but I think it's so important to look at that you know if we're fortunate to have our 1080. Uh, units, but as we're as we're developing protocols, is you absolutely have to look at the structure and understand that, and and the changes in their shape that are going to happen because of what their initial structure is. Right? It's like any. So if I take a narrow and I just do a, t- a shit ton of trap bar deadlift with them, right? Like long, slow, mm-hmm. heavy, grindy stuff. Right? That's going to compress them on top. It's going to push their outlet way down. And because they don't have a, a, tra- a deadlift is a perfect example. That's a long IR um, predominant type movement, right? They don't have that space. So they're just going to really create massive orientation and they're going to run out of room at the pelvis. So they're going to create the IR top down from the spine from yep. L1 down through L5 as a narrow. So like you want to get a narrow to lose every bit of rotation in their body, trap bar deadlift the hell out of them. Yeah. Right. Right. Now for a wide, you know, as a, you know, a linebacker, maybe they're a position player in, in uh, baseball, you know, a wrestler or something like that could be a really good uh, exercise for them. So that's, that's where understanding those and understanding the IR and ER spaces and understanding as a spectrum, like not every narrow is going to be the same. Like, uh, you know, a, somebody who's on the narrow side, maybe able to get away with a little bit of a trap bar, but somebody who's crazy narrow, you're, you're playing with fire and you're going to create some huge top-down compression through the lumbar spine, right? Yeah. You know, as you're talking about the difference between the, the narrow and the wide and that acceleration and like, and I, I feel like it is funny, like I'm, we were talking before the show, like I think if you measured most university strength coaches, they're probably mostly wides. You know, I'm like maybe an anomaly. I'm narrow, like <laughs> super narrow, high jumper, right? And I almost have had this intuition in doing the heavy sleds because I've tried the heavy sled stuff. And I, and I feel like for me it's like my body my brain won't let me be on the ground too long because i think it knows what's going to happen so even in those sets it's like it's almost like these little machine gun hits like trying to not orient and i think that's why i've i've got such good results with just unweighted squatted running where you're just dropping your center of mass down like a couple inches and just managing it because it's Mm -hmm. like now you aren't orienting but you're still getting a the experience of a more IR. It's a place because you drop down, you can get more, I think, more nutation or more IR potential out of the pelvis and work with it. But it's not going to orient you because you still have to, you can't pitch, you aren't pitching forward because you don't have a line behind you or whatnot. So I think, 
I feel like at least for, and I feel like that works better for narrows, like a squatted type run than wide. So far in my experience, mm-hmm. I think that's been, I've, I've gotten more out of it with that. So, I mean, at least that makes sense versus the heavy sled. Like you said, that wide eyes, so you can just crush it with those quick. Cause a squatty run is a little bit longer too. It might fit with how a narrow might desire to produce that. I mean, I think it could be yeah. valuable for everyone, but I, I, I think that for that narrow that needs to maintain or increase IR, it might be even more beneficial. Yeah, I think like a lot of these studies being done recently are on rugby and American football players. <laughs> yeah. Right? Which outside of like defensive backs and, and some wide receivers, you're getting you're getting a lot of wides. Yeah. Right. So that's I think there's some awesome research in that area. I think the the additional layer I want to add and dive into is just really identifying some of these adaptations we're creating with consideration of the structure will be really interesting moving forward. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, that's where it's at. And it is funny. Cause like, I, I do feel like people always want to reduce the human body down to like a data point, like a, I mean, and at some level, on some level, yeah. you know, once we understand more of it, there'll be more relevant data points, but like the body is a complex organism. It's a system of systems and it's not just one thing. And so it's like, you're trying to reduce the system of systems down to one data point, you know, one decrement. It's just not, it's never going to be optimal for everybody. So it's, and plus, too, like working in Olympic sports, right, versus football. I mean, I was thinking about this myself. Like, I worked with, I mean, what better sports for a narrow to work with myself than I worked with men's tennis, I worked with swimming, you know, like I worked with track and field. I mean, again, you're going to get different, you know, different within track and field, but like water polo, like I, I was able to work with a lot of narrows. And I think men's tennis was a, a sport where I noticed where my, I could call it narrow bias, I think was extremely mm-hmm. helpful. <laughs> um, and so that is something that I've, I'm like, sometimes I try to think about, well, how could I make my body like a wide so I could like train and feel what it's like to be a wide? Like, I've, that's the thing I've, the thing in the last year I've really been trying to go through, really trying to put myself on that side of things. Cause a lot of times coaches attract who, you know, I'm like this and I do well with this type of athlete. And so if you're like this, you can train with me and be successful. But I'm like, man, what is it like to be a wide? I'm just I like, like to pull my rib cages out and I'm going to like, or going to try to pressure myself. So I move around like, oh, I does. anyways, that kind of a rabbit trail, but um, that is, I think that's the good point though, is, and I really hadn't thought of it until you brought it up. Joel is uh, obviously I think everybody realized, understand we're all biased by our previous training history and mm-hmm. sporting career. But you know, a lot of strength coaches, they get into this because they love training and it helped them as an athlete. And a lot of us, myself included, were, are wide and that helped us in sport, but it's also hurt us as our, as our own kind of confirmation bias. And, and, uh, you really have to be able to remove yourself from that and, and understand that probably the, the biggest revelation I've had the last few years is every, everybody's a N equals one. Right. And, yeah. and, but having the heuristics and system in place to know how to develop KPIs and KMIs with that in mind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, i I couldn't agree more just like, and that's the fun of it too. I, I feel like it wouldn't oh, be, a, sure. it wouldn't be any fun if everybody was the same. <laughs> and it's like, Oh, I learned these perfect sprint positions from so-and-so and everyone's going to do them exactly this way. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. that's not fun. Like that's just kind of like, everyone's kind of a robot, you know, it's, <laughs> exactly. uh, it's much more fun when you understand the principles and the differences and, and, and motor learning too. And that offering creative, you know, creative application and how to teach these things and allow athletes these experiences. So, uh, let's see here trying to i i really love this train of thought i, I know we are going to get into um other you know other elements that fit with like maybe asymmetry and i, I do want to get into late stance or an early stance and lifting so i definitely want to hit on that 
before we get there, I do want to ask you one other thing, at least with the wide. So we covered the, you know, and I gave my two cents on the narrow, right? Like the narrow who needs to get down a little bit more. But if we, or if we overdo it and we heavy slutter mm-hmm. too much, like they can orient. And I've definitely had my fair share of negative responses for me from orienting because of heavy lifting. Like you said, my I ran out of bilateral IR at my pelvis and then it just went up the chain. And I could still, like, I could still throw, but it's not... It's funny because there's these breakdancing moves I used to be able to do in high school that involve a lot of rotation. I can't like I just I'm so it angers me actually that I can't do it anymore. And that's like that's my one of my athletic goals right now is to try to like I'm it's like side plank city, like no bench pressing, all bent bent press, Pavel bent bent press, like everything lateral, like not everything, but a lot. Trying to get back there. Anyways. You mentioned the wides have an easier time with the knee lift early on. I've, I've never heard that before, but it, to me, it makes sense. But I'd love it if you could go more into that, because, I, again, we talk on front side mechanics and backside on this show a lot. And the more that I can understand where that's coming from a, from a structure, the more we can all understand. I think that really helps us to, to dial in where are athletes coming from when they pick this strategy to move. So I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit. More. Yeah, well, I think what it is basically is because of the ability to mutate, you can drive the center of gravity straight down right so i can get i can get force down on the ground without having to create so ultimately backside mechanics are come generally from an orientation and then you're, you're hanging in late too long right like you're pushing mm-hmm. through first metatarsal head ball of the foot for too long behind you right it's a late it's stance what, it's kind of like a late stance oriented like running style yes, you'd yep, say. yeah exactly and that's that's what narrows have more access to that space right they so, have more more late stance which is an er bias position yeah. i know right. I, yeah karsten warholm by the way i did a video of him running like just from the side the 400 meter hurdle world record holder and that guy has like pretty substantial backside mechanics yeah. and this massive like collision he drives it into like his just his foot and this you know that you could just generalize and say oh foot strength you know and yeah <laughs> i'm sure there's a lot of tenderness and connective tissue strength in there but he also just dominates late stance you know and so yeah. how can you explain well, that having more real estate or ability to leverage late stance with a narrow sorry i'm like going a little yeah. bit that intrigues me as well no um and i think you give a perfect example like a 400 meter runner usually the the longer the distance the more narrow the athlete mm-hmm. right because of the predisposition to keep the center of gravity high right yeah to where their force production becomes much, much more vertical in nature, right? So oftentimes your athletes that kind of have some of the, the biggest backside mechanics are oftentimes like your, your 400 meter runners, those that are actually like still sprinting, you know, once you kind of get up to the eight. Yeah, it's more efficient to, to lift your knees high for a 400. It just does not, yeah. it's, it, it's along with anything else, it's just incredibly energy inefficient. <laughs> you have to like really, your psoas would be like destroyed, you know, by the time you get to the end of that. Or you yeah, you, just, you go to a track meet, look at your, look at your 60, 100s. Okay. You're going to, you're going to see they'll be, you know, a little bit wider, oftentimes still narrow, kind of, kind of depends. But as you get 200, 400, 800, yeah. keep getting more narrow and more narrow and narrow right yeah. so going back to like the wide is they don't have that so we talked about their big space for movement is that middle ir right where they can create the force down on the ground so can you explain that too like that's a, is that like 90 around 90 degrees of hip flexion where you're more nutated and have more i mean t- can you explain that a little bit more yeah so you know generally you do have your your Lamarck model where it's seen in different lights and all that but ER is more like zero to 60 ish. Yeah, yeah. Like zone one, uh, zone two, zone three. As you get, as you get three, closer yeah. to 90 is more like the, the really IR bias. And then as you go beyond, you pick up the ER bias again. But 
So the, the Y doesn't have access to as much of that lace. So they're not going to have the predisposition to really hang on through the forefoot and all that, right? So they can lower the center of gravity guy okay, and push down and back, right? Without getting into that late, uh, hanging into late for so long. And they can create the IR without having to orientate the pelvis. So that allows them mm-hmm. to drive through with the better front side mechanics and kind of a lower heel because it all starts with the center of gravity, right? Versus the narrow, who's going to do one of a couple of things. Either they'll they'll kind of pop up because that's where their center of gravity wants to go, or yeah, oftentimes on our high-level athletes and those that can sprint, they'll find a adaptation in which they can actually create some orientation of the pelvis, right? To be able to to drive the center of gravity down Mm -hmm. and be able to create some horizontal force vector right there. Got it. So you, you, yeah, I mean, a lot of times if if you have a narrow, say it's like a swimmer, yeah, a narrow swimmer who really hasn't developed that skill and coordination or the, the adaptation to really create the orientation pelvis when they sprint, they're going to pop right up, right? That'll kind of be the natural inclination of a narrow, unless you can kind of train them, compress them to get into some of these positions. Okay. So like you'll see it. So you see it with um, a lot of your high level Olympic sprinters that are narrows is they'll, they'll find a way either through somewhat through the orientation of the pelvis, but also kind of pulling their pump handle down to kind of create that down IR, Mm -hmm. right? Like you'll see that a lot in the, in a lot of your high level uh, Olympic sprinters that are narrow. Yeah. To just be able to get more force down into the ground to not be like up in the air. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I got you. Yeah. You'll see a lot all the time. You'll see Stern, like Justin Gatlin. Yeah. Right. Oh I'm yeah. The long strider. Yeah. Oh, what a good example. Like what right. a unique, yeah. What a unique example. Right. Most of the so kind of like, I don't know, narrow wide, but he's, he's probably not super narrow, but, um, yeah, no, I wouldn't he kind of had a longer drive phase and he, he found a way to do it through, through some orientations and not being, not being, you know, like crazy wide, but like Sue's the perfect example. Like, you know, work on your strengths. His strength is his acceleration. He's, you look at him, he's, he's a wider structure. Right. Okay. And as Randy's been on your, your podcast and as he, his relative power numbers went up and all that, he could just keep getting in better and better positions on acceleration. And that's, that's how his, his hundred meter got better. Right. Eventually he ran what, 629 was it? Yeah. 629 and 983, 984. Yeah. yeah. And that, but that was predicated largely on just getting really good at the, at the 60 yeah right? wides yeah no narrow is going to be setting those 60 meter records <laughs> no not, not. that's a good way to fi- also kind of figure into yeah. it too you know you know it's just uh great examples like ben johnson and carl lewis right yeah. right is you know before ben eventually pulled away like in 87 88 but before that when they were, they were running similar times as carl it was always the back end of the race and uh when he could get up and run and that's what you know carl you knew as narrow as hell because he was a he's a long mm-hmm. jumper too all your long jumpers can be narrow so and ben obviously a wider structure that he could he could pressurize so well that's why he was he was outstanding coming out of the blocks right yeah and that's why the charlie with his lifting protocol for him worked so well you know if carl had been on that no carl (laughs) yeah carl lewis hated one yeah he never would have long jumped again um but um yeah that's where these things are they're really cool to uh the lucky at and us with the 1080, we're just really starting to collect more data on it and get get even more refined in terms of how how we want to train these different structures. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. Simplyfaster.com is a fantastic coaching resource, not only on the level of their blog and all the information they put out, 
but also on the level of their online store. With the click of a button, you can see and purchase the technology that is utilized by so many of the world's great coaches. In simplyfaster.com's online store, you can have access to training technology such as blood flow restriction training, timing systems, including the free lap timing system, bar speed tracking devices, a variety of resistance training machines, such as the K-Box, and also Kaiser training units, which Kaiser training units being strongly recommended by sprint coach Randy Huntington, for example. You'll also get access to motorized sprint training units, such as the 1080 Sprint, force plates, and much more. You can check that all out by heading to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, Tony Holler would always say that Carl Lewis hated lifting weights. He would bring that, bring that, uh, bring that into the uh, the conversation quite often. So, yeah. So basically, because you're saying because the uh, wide archetype has better access at mid stand, you know, mid stand, like when the foot's underneath the pelvis, um, you we call it zone two or whatever. That they that's where they're that's where they make their money. They don't really once that foot is behind there, they lose kind of touch with it. I guess you mm-hmm. could say they, they can't really leverage it back there. Whereas the narrow, mm-hmm. they can leverage that foot even when it's still behind them, still like be able to drive, you know, the correct rotation into it so they can, you know, it can get more. I mean, obviously they're not like pushing, but you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. they could just hang on to that, that tension, that foot longer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, oh gosh, we just had our freshman in this past week and obviously that, you know, we test them and we are not coaching them at all. We just want to observe, but you can, uh, you can tell a lot just watching that. Oh yeah. Other natural patterns. Yeah. I had a, a sprinter back when I was in Wilmington college. It's funny. Cause I remember the people who ran different, you know, <laughs> and like, like Justin <laughs> Gatling, like a good example. It'd be interesting yeah. to go like some of these people who run, you know, quote unquote different. It, it's mm-hmm. just so interesting to get into why are they doing this? And I, it again brings it into like people like, Oh, well, if they just change their technique or, you know, whatever, I just think it's funny. It's like, well, how, but they change their structure too. If you're going to change their technique like that. Right. But, um, this guy was like, he was probably like five eleven, like 145 pounds, narrow, 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 like as narrow as you can get. And I just remember it was so unique because his like hip extension and foot behind him was, and this guy was fast. He eventually I think set the school record in the hundred at Wilmington, you know, mm-hmm. after I left. And his hip extension was insane behind him. Like the, the, the distance that his foot was on the track behind him. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. it was almost like, oh, it's too long. Get that foot to the front side. You know, like the typical, like, oh, make it all front side or whatever. But this yeah. guy was able to just leverage the shit out of that foot behind him. Just so narrow. And I think part of it too is you also have to rotate up top to meet that. Like if your foot's mm-hmm. going to be on the ground behind you, you also have to really rotate that other shoulder forward or something. You know, something has to come forward and rotate forward to meet that yeah. foot being there. And then... You know, he still got it around to the foot, the front five, but I feel like if you told a narrow, and maybe that's why people would get up in arms about people over pushing, because like you get a wide, if a wide tried to leave their foot behind them, they'd probably like yeah. fall on their face or something, or you know, it would just be a disaster, right? Like it's just there's certain things, particular body types, like that narrow, narrow, super, um, like that extreme, like he can he can do it, like he can leave his foot on the ground like that late and. I don't know. Maybe if he was to go from a, t- a 10-8 to a 10-4 guy, maybe it's on the ground a little less behind him, but still his strength. You know, it's still, it's still where he makes his, a lot of his money as an athlete. Yeah, I, th- I think, you you know, there's obviously some changes you can make that could be advantageous, but ultimately you go you go too far in one direction as you're going you're gonna to kind of negate what, what made them good and, and uh, you know, got them to where they are. Yeah, it, it, it's almost like it's like it's like there's these little band. All right, you're late. You have a bandwidth of you're good at when your foot's behind you, but obviously if it gets too far, like it's not good anymore. Mm-hmm. Like here's like and here's like a sprinter archetype on the top level who's managing that type of strength mm-hmm. really really well. 
Yeah, so. I mean, so think like sprinters all the time. You're going to see really pretty low, poor, like hip IR values. Okay, why? Mm-hmm. Because they're going to have an orientation of the pelvis, which is going to it's going to limit their IR to give them just a little bit of access to ER. Okay, but it's going to get them closer to that max P moment, right? But the thing is, sometimes they push too far in that direction. Is now they get very focal loads of IR in a tibia or in their back or something like that to where you have to restore just enough that they can distribute load over a greater area. And that's kind of where the question becomes and you ascertain what is the appropriate bandwidth for each individual is it's, it's a lot of times trial and error. Yeah. Right. Can they just, cause that's the issue when you get so compressed is you'll, you'll get so focal with where you're creating IRs to eventually, you know, you create pathology, but if I can just distribute just enough that, the, the, it's not too much relative motion because what does relative motion do? It dampens, right? If I'm a sprinter or a high force athlete, I don't want to have too much of that, yeah. right? I'm going to dampen force too much. I'm not going to be able to, to store and release from connective tissue. So that's, that's really the question is just, have I been able to capture enough shape change to distribute load to where I'm within the safe bandwidth? So that's kind of how I've used that to determine when is that appropriate strategy or not for, for the N equals one? Yeah. Uh, so when we're not talking, tra- I mean, it's, it's fun to talk sprinting. Cause I mean, well, one gate does fit factor in everything. It's sure. the velocity yeah. is awesome, but like, you know, we're not all sprinters. We're team sport. We're baseball players. We're football mm-hmm. players. Like how does that factor into band, the bandwidths? How does that factor into what you're trying, like from injury prevention, especially like, how do I, and looking at it under that scope of things, um, any, any other, um, you know, anything there or anything else that you're looking at with the differences between the two and how you choose to train them when you're looking at speed? I do want to get into weights here in a bit. Yeah. I mean, it just kind of goes to the sport, right? So for, for our sprinters, our jumpers and track and field, obviously we kind of know from videos, types of things, positions that they get into their structure. And then from there determine what's appropriate excursion range of motion for them for baseball. It's easy because we, we have slow motion film. We know their structure. We know, um, you know, really, I look at it from a couple different lenses. If we're going to intervene is do they have enough power output guys? So if there is a lack of output, then there needs to be an intervention. Is there a health issue? So previous injury, or we've been able to deduce there's a high likelihood of a, of a, of an injury. That's point for intervention. The third one would be efficiency. So how much energy can they create compared to their effort? So those are kind of like the, the three different levels that I use to, to uh, help us navigate when to make interventions and like a movement solution or shape change and those types of things. Right. So if they don't have enough power, cause you talked about like throw a narrow on the hex bar deadlift, just too much yeah. axial lifting, right? Like, especially that yeah. pushes them forward could be a pretty poor recipe over a long period of time. You know, as time goes on, increasing compression wells or strategies, what, how do you increase power with they when they don't have it? Like, what is that? How do you yeah. solve so that? So that's, that's where um, it goes back to the structure, right? Okay. So I think if I'm a, if I'm a narrow hitter or pitcher in baseball, okay. I have this big on-ramp of ER that I kind of create movement and velocity to where I have a quick flash of my IR or force down, okay, is I need that on-ramp, okay, a lot of times. In, in, a, in a bigger, especially in like pitching, a bigger um amplitude of rotation yeah. more mostly. more er in the loading phase is that what you're saying that yeah yeah so think it's expansive yeah. ro- for a pitcher expansive rotation 
Okay. So for them, more output may not be anything having to do with lifting, but we, we give them some of their early uh, ER and IR. They can expand and rotate better, create more stretch through connective tissue that they have this on-ramp into their IR mm-hmm. force down. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, 100%. Okay. 100%. For, then for a while, it may be, all right, we're, we're freaking getting after in the weight room. We're focusing on this. The one thing I will say with wides, though, okay, is where strength coaches have to be careful is they get really good at lifting, yeah. right? And then they start to like lifting. And then, <laughs> then all of a sudden, they're a power lifter, right? So what happens mm-hmm. to a power lifter? That's the most A to P compressed. And so you need external rotation to be able to create, to superimpose IR on top of it. I need space to be able to create the downforce, right? So what happens with a power lifter? They turn the feet way out. The hip sockets get turned way out, right? They mm-hmm. walk like a penguin. I know that's what I did. That's <laughs> my body's really screwed up nowadays. Okay, but that's what that's what you get with the athletes too. That's the that's the shape change that is advantageous to the heavy lifting. Okay? Yeah, you had the podcast with um, uh, Angus Pat Brett. Davidson. Okay, yeah, yeah, Pat, yeah, yeah. Pat talked about like a ball being omnidirectional. He talked about a pill not being. That's basically what it is, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so that's the one thing we have to be careful with the wides is just that they keep enough of their little bit of expansive movement that they can store and release energy. Okay. Cause they think about a power lifter. Okay. They want to just store and release through the skeleton. They want minimal change through, um, you know, like fascial uh, structures and those types of things, you know, with a athlete is we need just enough. That they can still get that, that um, store and release through connective tissue, through fascial structures and those types of things. Right. Mm. So that's where I like the wide. Yes. Lifting can be good, beneficial power production, but you can also have too much of a good thing. Yeah, of course. So, I, I mean, for me, the, the narrows makes perfect sense because I've, I've actually, especially in the last year or two, experienced a lot of my own fair share of that. And, you know, I mean, heels elevating your squat or slant board squats being incredibly easy way to do that because you're, you're getting more of the ER ramp right away, right in the descent. It's ER biasing you. So, you're not going to go into IR soon. And then, yeah, along with that too, I found that actually like noticing lateral heel on the way down which is funny because i got so away from heels and squat like it's like oh push through heel so stupid well yeah push through heel is not smart like that's not the best thing you could do but to load with lateral heel yeah that's actually pretty cool and so in i noticed that in doing more of that with this in conjunction with the slant board that my my running jumps felt better like i started to feel more of that elasticity that i used to have before i just you know started doing all the powerlifting stuff and compress myself and so to me, the, the, that allowing for that, are we talking about too, like front foot elevated split squats or anything with a slant board that ERs you a little bit? Like, yeah, like, but what about, so for a wide, I mean, they basically just tell her more normal lifting, but when mm-hmm. you do need to start intervening, be like, all right, you're becoming too much of a power lifter. You're walking like a penguin. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously single leg lifting easy, you know, that's easy. But of course, some people still treat RFE split squat like a power lift, you know, um, which is funny. But like, what are, what are some differences there in terms of, you know, you mentioned the, when you get too far into it. Yeah, that's, you know, like a wide, you're not going to, you're not going to really move them all the way back into early because they don't have much of them. Yeah, they can't, space, they can't get right? there. So, that's where a lot of like your front foot elevated, you're just kind of moving them back into that more middle, middle representation a little bit better. Those type of activities are really good for them. You know, doing a lot of sideline activities that'll help compress them laterally and, and, and help them reachieve their A to P uh, expansion. So we, 
we like our freshmen are just starting out this week. We spent so much of our time early on just teaching them different different rolling patterns and using that as a means of creating compression on one side and expansion on the other. So especially with your wides, we, we like to get them on the ground a lot. The narrows are the ones that do have the capability to to kind of work more into some of the the heel elevated positions and and start to achieve some more some some more earlies and those types of things. I think the the big thing for us is is understanding where their center of gravity is and that wides and narrows are going to get there in a little bit different uh, kind of manner. So generally all your athletes, if they're crazy compressed, more like end game, which means there isn't any more compression mm-hmm. to, to put the body through, they're going to end up to the right. Right. But like a wide will kind of go back on the right first and then they'll come forward just because of their center of gravity is lower and how the, how the, um, the nominates will, mm-hmm. will turn. And then a narrow will kind of go forward on the left and then they'll kind of push over to the right. So understanding that kind of helps us understand. This is, you know, say a year or two ago, I was like, oh yeah, we'll get them on a slant board. We'll get them front foot elevated mm-hmm. and all that. But you do have to kind of peel back another layer yeah. where you understand exactly where the center of gravity is and what foot context they're missing, right? Because you need those four points of contact. You need the base, the first metatarsal, the base, of the fifth, and then the medial and lateral calcaneus, right? Okay. So understanding that will help you understand kind of what do they need to do to make sure they got, because if I don't have the foot context, I don't have relative motion. Yeah. I'm creating orientation. So the, one of the best examples I can use, Joel, is it's become really popular nowadays. You know, like the what's that strap that people will wrap around their hip and they do like pelvic rotation and stuff. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I, I know what you're talking about. Okay. Like that's a 3D strap. Okay, is they'll stand there, they'll wrap around their pelvis and they'll do some rotations. But what they'll do, they'll they'll as they rotate into a hip, okay, is they'll go all the way to the lateral edge of their foot and they'll completely lift up their foot. Oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Yep. Right. Right. That's an orientation. That's not relative motion. Yeah, that's the hips moving as a two by four and not not actually twisting. Yeah, but it's. I mean, you see it. You see it on Instagram and social media all the time. It's just understand those foot contacts understand the center where the center of gravity is and then you can understand where you kind of need to create where you need to shift back where you need to create mm-hmm. turns and those types of things so you know it's been absolutely game changing for us for me and my staff and helping us connect dots and those types of things i think it just it takes a lot of time to learn it can be a struggle but i think you put it well is that's that's what makes it interesting and fun right you know if there's a simple equation for everybody this shit wouldn't be any fun. Yeah. Right? We would be below the line of AI, you know, if that was the case. <laughs> and we need to stay above the, or we need to stay above the rising AI line. So that's why we're that's learning right. this stuff. <laughs> as long to keep us from being replaced, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, that's you know, that's that's what we kind of use. Really the biggest thing for us is just developing heuristics for all these things, right? Uh, as we've kind of worked through this expansion compression model that drives a lot of what we do, you know, if you at the end of the day, you're going down in the weight room, you see a lot of the same stuff, but kind of the, the methodology, the rhyme and reason and who's doing exactly mm-hmm. what are, are really being driven by these, these heuristics, which I think are, are founded in some much better principles for us nowadays. Gotcha. So you'd say like, um, a, a narrow, so a, a narrow, um, ISA, you, you could do a front foot elevated, like split swap, but a wide, because they're never going to really get true early stance. They're just not really built for it. Like for them, basically mm-hmm like a regular feet equal split squat would probably be a better choice for that type of individual. Well, I mean, you certainly can, um, you know, we've, we've used that with narrows as well, but I, I think, um, 
that's kind of really in in the wide's wheelhouse. Um, gotcha. and, as, and when you're talking about getting center of gravity back to restore some relative motions, is um, oftentimes that's a that's a, a more kind of sure bet position that a a wide can actually get their foot contacts and create some some shape change. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I'm always like, I mean, Jay Schrader's extreme iso lunge, like simple as it gets. <laughs> both feet, both feet are equal level. You know, you're creating pretty much 90 degree angles for the in the yeah, front leg. Yeah. Like it's pretty, it's pretty standard. You know, I'm like, all right, well, if someone's not getting what they really need out of this, or we could optimize it, what would it be? But I'm not fast to, I'm not quick to throw people in other. You know, like I'll put like a 25 pound plate in the front foot. You know, something that's like mm-hmm. smaller. You know, or or say, hey, let's get a little more heel in the front foot, or like you know that Alex Effer I just talked about Dan Victor, the Dan Victor trick with the band around the calf of the front shin. That's pull. You have to like fight it and pull back, so you have to pull your front leg <laughs> back. Like stuff, I think like little stuff like that is pretty. Like I like going there first versus like, all right, you're gonna stand on this huge block or do it. You know, I don't know. I <laughs> I just think, um, yeah, it's interesting to think about. I I because I do know you know, yeah, with the wides to, to just get you back to mid stance. Like, all right, we're good. I'm good with that. Yeah. You know, we, yeah oftentimes that's enough for them just to, um, to be able to store and release, uh, energy from connective tissues. Yeah. So, um, just quickly, you know, our time's just about out here and really great training conversation thus far. Um, like lifting changes. So you mentioned why versus let's say hex bar deadlift, you know, any different mm-hmm. instructions set up, um, you know, approaching the lift, um, talking about, some of the lift changes between those archetypes in your program? Yeah. So I think, um, certainly some of the, the exercise selection is part of it. So, uh, generally with our, our narrows, we won't trap bar anymore. So we have like an open-ended bar that will do like a kind of like a split deadlift at times, mm-hmm. uh, which we, we can get a little more vertical. It's not as kind of nutation bias. Uh, and also the, the one thing I like about that too, is I can really look at their foot contacts, right? And, and are they actually creating high force from IR positions and not, not massive supination in ER positions, right? Uh, so that's also become a good, good test for us um, with the narrows. Um, uh, we'll use, if they're super, super narrow, we won't even do that. We'll just kind of do like a, a kickstand RDL with just kind of a, a, a small kind of moment arm at the, at the pelvis. Because uh, remember, they don't, they don't have access to a mm-hmm. ton, of, ton of nutation. Um, but you know, I have hinging point. They don't RDL. Like if you take somebody super narrow and you have them do a, do a bilateral barbell RDL uh, is one, they're either, they're not gonna be able to keep, you know, maintain their lordosis, right? Cause they, they can't mutate worth a damn, or if they find a way to do it, they are creating the absolute most compressive strategy yeah. in the, in the lumbar spine. Right. So, uh, a, a narrow will compress from L1 down to L5, a wide will compress. L5 up. So you'll see just massive IRing in spine. So that's that's out of the program. You know, first first thing is do no harm. So yeah, um, we'll, you know, we'll rely on on um squatting patterns a little bit more of these yeah. individuals. But we will get hamstring work from um blue hams and and things like that. Uh the wides, you know, that will be the group that we we will push trap our deadlift and do those types of things with. The other thing too is kind of going back to the IR and ER windows is a lot of, if you're super, super narrow, that's when we're really doing some more, uh, uh, shorter impulse type stuff. So actually something I brought back yeah. was like, the, um, selective hypertrophy stuff. So like with really low fatigue percentages with velocity based work and things like that. So this is, I got this from Bill is, um, 
with a really narrow person, you should never see the sticking point. Right? Yeah, yeah, I, to- I completely point, agree. I 100%. If you see 100%. the sticking point, okay, the impulse was too long, right? Uh, and that's that's when they're really going to push into late. Now, can you get away with, get away with it for certain times of the year? Uh, learning compressive strategies, yeah, but by and large, you're, you don't want uh, to see uh, sticking points with super narrow individuals. So that's kind of exercise selection, uh, impulses, those types of things. That's what's been kind of, um, and also configuration too. So um, we talked about this earlier, so like the, the cone shape. So say I'm like a, a pylon, so narrow into wide pelvis, okay? That's a ton of downward velocity, right? Those are people that are going to have a hard, if you see an athlete coming in like that, you know, nine times out of 10, they're going to have a hard time overcoming gravity. They're going to have a hard time jumping and sprinting, right? So that's somebody, you know, we may do like some light method work or sort of bands on the top, like mm-hmm. reverse bands, okay, to help them feel and find like a concentric outlet and be able to drive up out of the hole. Uh, so just, you know, some, you know, impulse, exercise selection off structure, then also within the configuration, kind of understanding some of those things um, are important. Or like with the narrows too, we do a lot of, um, some squatty squatty like box squats um and then eventually we'll work into like some uh really fast like short depth uh k box really light stuff Mm -hmm. where they they have to find foot contacts and a concentric outlet um so just little things like that have been have been changes in the program that we've we felt have been really good from from, um increasing force production and and allowing them to maintain the shapes that that made them good athletes yeah, I feel like yeah, no, we don't have a lot of time. You you put two thoughts in my head real quick, so I'll just I'll just shoot with them. It's what you know. It's funny. Um, like the the Marv Marinovich style training with like the balance discs and PVC pipes and the you know the physio balls and stuff. I think people would see that and be like, oh, it's just it's just balance training. There's no force here. This isn't this. Is, but I always think it sometimes is narrow therapy, like compressed narrow therapy. And I think about like balance discs, like where there's these discs and there's a little like tennis ball shaped thing underneath, and they're hard. Like they're pretty quick to it's not like a slow thing your foot sinks into but they'll do like squats with people with have squat with those and whatnot but i look at that like you can't be on a balance disc and not have three points of contact you know what i'm mm-hmm. saying like you can't you cannot orient like you are yeah. always in reciprocal motion so yeah maybe it's not the same load but at least it's getting if you've lost any reciprocal motion it's tying you back into reciprocal motion and I, you know, I, I think you can take those discs too far. I think you beyond their original use, but like, I, I love them for that element. And then yeah. it's funny too, like people, you know, there was some Twitter post about like, Oh, the RDL should be a staple, like bring it back. It's I the staple that. lift. And I'm like, I just think, I you know, that. I, yeah, for a wide maybe, but I tell you what, if I did too many RDLs for me personally, and I honestly, even just deadlifting, I, I, I killed my elasticity even just doing like it was, and for me deadlifts turn into RDLs anyways like yeah. at the time like I mean kind of I, and even Olympic lifting like I, I love Olympic lifting but stuff that's too heavy just created shape changes for me that were not the best for my athleticism and I just I don't know yeah so I'm like yeah I maybe for some people not for me I, <laughs> yeah. I saw that and I saw it was a bunch of like football offensive linemen I was like you know what damn right yeah that exactly is. yeah for but, them sure yeah. but to to you know blanketly apply that across all athletic popula- populations you're gonna you're gonna do a lot of harm yeah i, uh, so I agree just i think my biggest message and you know my whole staff has bought into this and trying to to um you know spread this across the snc performance community is this is this is really where 
you're going to start to connect dots and get your, your quickest uh, ROI on your interventions is once you can really understand their, their uh, structure is you'll know, you know exactly what you need. Um, and you can develop quicker interventions and, and quicker and better ROI. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, last thing, just really quickly, cause we were talking about this before and like super intriguing to me. And I, I, I mean, my training has just gone here is just, valuing impulse every year like you, you hear okay vertical jump like most of it's made in that like one second reversal right and like yeah for my mm-hmm. guess a pure but there's pressure and there's structure and there's reversal of the guts and all that stuff too of course but i i mean i love oscillatory reps and not even oscillatory i just look at like even impulse like if i do a hex bar deadlift now i kind of set myself up in more of a WEC 45 stance where i'm not e- e- ir'd as much i'm not compressed and I just value, honestly, the first three inches. That's all I care about. Just bam, you know, and then I'm not trying to like shrug it at the top and, you know, trying to like, like vertical jump it. I, I just feel so much more athletic when it is these quick hits um, with that almost, like you said, there's a short window for IR. Could you just explain how those go together? And obviously I'm a narrow, so just that as a context. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, what it's basically doing, because as a narrow, you have all that access to expansion. The outlet is in order to to uh, create this this positive impulse and 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 to move vertically or whatever direction is you got to be able to capture the concentric outlet so that's the challenging part. Yeah, concentric outlet is is what again? So just the pelvic floor being able to to develop oh, to make it concentric, make it a trampoline yeah. basically. Yeah yeah, 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 and that's and actually so that's a great example is a great thing for narrows are to get on a trampoline or even even better like a gymnastic floor. Okay, where they have to kind of develop that concentric orientation and feel that timing. So I have a uh, friend and mentor, Mike K out in Arizona. He does a lot of stuff like that with narrows with uh, kind of aqua bags. Um, oh, yeah. And okay. in the gymnastic floors is timing, finding concentric orientation, mm. priming that up with, you know, kind of trampolining into the guts and those types of things. So that's where your shorter impulse, ultimately what you're trying to do is just be able to, because they are expansive and they want to go down, right. And expand is, what they have to work on is developing that concentric orientation of the outlet to help them drive back up. Right. Nah. That's, I think that's right. <laughs> you're right on Joel. That's just intuitive training. Right? That's why that's always felt, felt so good for you, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, that's, that's, and knowing I'm a narrow though, and knowing that like that's <laughs> my narrows, you know, we're good on that. Yeah. You know, I'm sure it's probably all right for, um, you know, wides too, but not the same way, you know, it's, it's a different, yeah, I mean, they don't they don't have trouble capturing the concentric, right? Their their trouble is 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 eccentric, right? Yeah, it to makes be able to get to descend and and create some space. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's almost like they're like almost they need to. It's just like you know, almost sum it up to is like why it's like yeah, do the same a lot of the same stuff you're already doing, but just take time to expand things, take time to rotate things, take time to create space, and make sure that shapes are happening throughout the body. Like you, yeah, it's kind of like they may do. Um, they may do hurdle jumps with like a uh, a longer impulse where they're actually like sinking mm-hmm. and pulling into it and, and learning how to kind of store more from from connective tissue, right? Yeah, they if you have like a really if you have a really compressed wide, you yeah. know. Yeah, they need to learn. Right, or a narrow, it's like boom, get off the ground, learn how to capture that that yeah. outlet and all that. A wide may actually have to slow down, get into the heels, longer counter movement where they can actually learn and feel how to use uh, connective tissue release some 
Yeah, that's what, when I stopped playing basketball and just did more plyos, I, I actually, my athleticism wasn't great because it was like too much downtime. You know, basketball is just like boing, boing, boing. You know, it's always yeah. like this little quick pelvic floor, you know, trampoline yeah. hits. And anyways, I know we could talk about this stuff forever, but <laughs> hey, I'll, uh, we'll just leave it at that. Great show. And, and I really, Rick, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on, man. I, I'm going to have fun uh, going through this and editing as well. I'm sure I'm going to take a bunch of notes. So appreciate your yeah, time. Yeah, this was, this was fun, Joel. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the show. If you like what we're doing, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or a view on iTunes, Spotify, whatever you're listening to. We totally appreciate it. We'll see you next week with another great guest.